right, today we finish the book of Philippians, our third book. We've gone through three in almost a year. It's awesome. <clears throat> All right, the keys, the secret to contentment uh, as we wrap this up. In the book of 1 Kings in chapter 21, we find a really interesting but somewhat gruesome story of a king and a queen. And King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were in charge of ruling over the country of Israel. And we have a crybaby, and we have a woman whose name was synonymous with evil and with seduction. And one day, Ahab looks out his window, and he's looking at this little plot of land that is owned by a man named Naboth. Now, this little plot of land is right next to the palace. And he goes down there and he talks to Naboth and he says, listen, I need a garden and I really don't want to go too far. And this is right next to the castle. So I tell you what, I would really like to buy this field from you. And actually, I will give you a better field, a better vineyard. And Naboth says to the king, he said, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors, of my fathers. And so he won't give it to King Ahab. And so what does King Ahab do? He goes back home, he goes to his room, curls up on his bed, refuses to eat, and he starts pouting over this plot of land that he can't have for a garden. And his wife, Jezebel, walks in, and she's like, what is wrong with you? What's going on? Why are you not eating? And so he tells her the story about how his offer to Naboth got rejected and how we won't, sell, how we won't give him his land. And she says, wait a minute, aren't you the king? Like, don't you run things around here? Get up and eat something, and I'll take care of it. I'll get it for you. And so he gets up, and she heads off. She writes letters in the king's name, and she sends them off to the elders of the city where Naboth lives. Now, apparently, he lived in a city away from where his vineyard was, but that land was his, and it was his father's that had been passed down from generation to generation. If you remember, in the Old Testament, the land was supposed to stay in the family. You weren't supposed to sell it. You weren't supposed to give it away. But in very difficult times, when people did have to sell their lands just to survive, God had made provision in the Old Testament, in the law, that every 50 years there was a great reset. And all of the land that had passed out of families was to be returned to its original owners, and all debts were supposed to be canceled. That'd be awesome. All debts canceled. And so... He says, listen, I cannot give you this land. God won't let us do it. And so Jezebel writes letters to the elders of this city that Naboth lives in. She says, listen, I want you guys to call a meeting. Once you call a meeting, I want you to put Naboth at the head, but we're not going to honor him. We're actually going to put two worthless men beside him who are going to accuse him of blasphemy, of blaspheming the king and blaspheming God. And for a capital crime, you had to have two witnesses to accuse the person. So she puts two worthless men next to him, and they accuse him, and they take Naboth out, and they stone him, and they kill him. And they send word back to the castle. They said, Naboth is dead. So Jezebel strolls into King Ahab and says, listen, you know that guy Naboth? He had an untimely death. And so that field of his is now up for grabs. You should go down and take possession of it. And so he does. And everything seems to be going along pretty smoothly until something happens. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he is gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? 
And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs lipped up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. That's pretty nice. That'll ruin your day right there. That's a bad prophecy from Elijah. And he tells him this, and Ahab repents for a little while, but he's more, he's more sorry that he got caught than he really is having a change of heart. Now, three years go by, fast forward three years, and King Ahab is sitting there talking with the king of Judah, and he says, listen, there is this city, there's this little town, and I want it. So I tell you what, why don't you go to battle with me? Why don't we team up our forces and go to war and take this city back? And the, and the king of Judah says, okay, sounds good to me. We'll go in, but I tell you what, I will wear a certain dress and you dress up in your battle armor. And during the battle, somebody fires off an arrow and it catches Ahab right between the chinks in his armor. And so his chariot driver pulls him out of the way, out of the battle. And it says that the driver propped him up inside the chariot and he ended up dying. Ahab died, blood all over the place. So they take the chariot to the car wash and they start washing it out at this pool and the dogs are there. The dogs licking up the blood of Ahab just like he prophesied. Now, Ahab was dogged by discontent and he ended up paying for it with his life. And you can read about what happened to his wife Jezebel. She got it even worse, but she ended up being judged as well. Someone asked John D. Rockefeller, they said, listen, how much money does it take for a man to be happy? And he replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. It doesn't matter how much you have. And that's true. We think in our lives, if I can just get that house, or if I can just have that job, or if I can just have this much money in the bank, I will be content. I'll be happy. But it always takes just a little bit more. Um, contentment might just be the most difficult thing to find in America today. We are bombarded every single day with messages that tell us that happiness can be found in material things, but it's not going to happen. On my way to work uh, every day, uh, at least twice a day, there is a lottery billboard uh, that I see. What's it up to now? Okay, good for you guys. <laughs> that was a test. Uh, I see it every day. I found an article by the New York Daily News that said that 70% of the people that win the lottery are broke within seven years. 70%. How does that happen? Because you always got to have just a little bit more. And these people are claiming bankruptcy uh, and it ends in destruction. The Apostle Paul had the keys to contentment. He knew the secret. Uh, I'm sure he would have rather had the keys to his chains but he was freed up in a way that lots of men get locked up, and he had contentment. And what we're going to do is finish the book today, uh, this book that tells us how we can have joy in the midst of any circumstance, no matter what's going on in our lives. So we're going to do chapter 4, verses 10, all the way through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, 10 years have passed since Paul and Silas planted this little church in Philippi where they went down to the river and they found some people down there and they started this church and it's grown and it's become very fruitful. And the word that he uses here that your concern has been revived for me, it speaks of like a plant or a flower that has started to wilt and now it's bloomed again. And he says, your, your concern for me has bloomed again in a very practical way. And he said, of course, you guys had concern for me, but you didn't have opportunity. We don't really know why this is. I mean, Paul was kind of a hard guy to track down. And maybe that was it. Maybe they couldn't find him. Uh, after he left Philippi, he went through Asia and he went all the way to Greece and then back to Jerusalem. So maybe it was that they couldn't find him. Um, or maybe it was just economic. Maybe they just didn't have the means. We know that they were kind of a poor community and they didn't have an opportunity until now and they tracked him down. Um, but one thing's clear is that they tried to keep in touch with him as much as they could. And this is an important principle because a lot of times missionaries are sent out with a check and a pat on the back and say, good job, we'll check in with you later. And they kind of get forgotten about and they don't hear from the home church as to what's going on. So it's important not only to give them financially, but also to stay in touch with them emotionally and practically. And so I'll give you a quick update as to what's going on with uh, the people that we support. Jake and Nikki Phillips are back in Thailand. Uh, they just got back there a couple weeks ago. They actually came back for a little while to get some specialized training. When all of that happened with Afghanistan and they do security training, the things that they train their missionaries for are exactly the type of situation that happened in Afghanistan. And they were working almost round the clock with their contacts, trying to help people get out. Um, and they were able to get a bunch of people out successfully. That was a really cool thing. But once they got their breath, they came back to get some more specialized training. So they're back there now and they're digging wells and um, they're doing some other top secret stuff that we can't talk about, but hopefully they'll talk about when they come back and see us. Um, the Luchis, Kiefer Lucci and his family over in the Czech Republic, they're going to be back in January or February. And we're going to have them in. We're going to try to have them in and speak and talk about what they do over there. Uh, but they're doing well. I know they're excited to come back. And Jeff found a car for them. They're going to need a car to get around when they get here. Uh, so we're excited to see them in person. Um, but that's what our missionaries are doing. And they were trying to keep in touch with Paul. And after they found him, they blessed him in a very practical way. Last week, we talked about how we use our minds and the things that we think about. And Paul says here that contentment is a learned character trait that he's learned. First, he told us we have to think about specific things. And he says, I have learned, I've been very intentional about my actions. And it's not something that comes very easily to most of us to be content, especially in our society. Remember, Paul was part of the religious elite. Uh, he grew up in a good home. Uh, he was trained in the best schools. He excelled at his vocation. And so this is a man who really hadn't wanted for anything in his life, not until he saw his need for Jesus. And then he was reliant on him for or everything. Um, listen to what he writes in Romans 7, 7. Even Paul, 
Even he struggled with contentment. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So apparently Paul had a coveting problem. Uh, now, I don't think that he was coveting material things. I think he was probably coveting uh, position and honor and prestige in the religious community. And the re- reason he excelled at that stuff was because he wasn't content. He wasn't content in his situation. Now he says, in every situation, I have learned to be content because he knew that real commitment, true com- uh, contentment can only be found in a right relationship with the Lord and trusting his sovereign will for our lives. Uh, People search for it in all kinds of ways, obviously, but they'll never find it in a fallen world. They'll never find it in a broken world. Lottery winners, uh, rich and famous, they try to fill it. They try to find it with all kinds of things, but they can't find it. It was like the rich industrialist who was on vacation in a foreign land, and he came upon this man. He was kind of disturbed to see this fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat. And he came up to me, he's like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you just sitting here next to your boat? And he's like, well, I, I caught all my fish for today. And he said, well, why don't you go back out and catch some more fish? And I said, well, what would I do with them? He said, well, you could bring them in and you could sell them. You could make more money. You could buy a new boat and you'd be able to go out farther. And you could buy new nets that would allow you to fish deeper. And you could catch more fish. Then pretty soon you could have a whole fleet of boats. You could make more money. You could be rich like me. He says, well, then what would I do? I said, well, then you could, you, know, you could sit back and enjoy life. You could rest. What do you think I'm doing right now? <laughs> I'm enjoying life, man. I'm content. What he thought, he found a lazy person. He found somebody who was truly content in his situation. Here are some of the traits of a truly contented person, things that we need to ponder in our own lives. A contented person is confident in God's providence. He's also satisfied with little. A contented person is, is content independent of their circumstances. They are strengthened by divine power, and they're also preoccupied with the well-being of others. Confident in God's providence. God does his work on earth in two different ways. He does it through the miraculous, through stepping in, interrupting history, and doing something that there's no scientific or natural explanation for. And these are what we pray for, that God would interrupt, that he would do something that only he can do, and that's one of the ways that he works. And another way that we pray, when we pray for God's will to be done, either in miracles or in his providence, and providence is the way he is weaving our stories together, where he is arranging circumstances for where our needs are going to be met. And actually, this is the, this is the, you know, the most of the ways that God works. He puts people in our lives, he arranges things so that our needs get met. And he does that because he wants us to partner with him in the work of bringing um, his will to the world. It's what a lot of people would call coincidence or luck. Like, that's a great coincidence that that happened. Like, well, it's not really a coincidence and it's not luck, it's the Lord. It's his providence that does that. Uh, in Proverbs 16.9, it tells us that the mind of a person plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We can plan all we want, but ultimately, God is weaving the story together. And really, that should give us comfort in the middle of hard times. When we're going through difficult times, when we're walking through um, these times where we don't know what's going on and we have lots of questions, we should take comfort in the fact that God is still in control, right? This is what we say. God is still in control. It didn't take him by surprise. He's still on the throne. He is 
omnipotent, he's omnip, you know, omniscient. We're trusting in his providence. I mean, two examples of these, just two brief examples are Joseph and, and Esther, right? Joseph probably would have been content to have run his father's ranch and been the favored son. That was a pretty good gig. And then he got sold into slavery. And what seemed like terrible circumstances, God brought him up, number two, in the country to be able to save his people. And then they all multiplied in Egypt. Not only did he save the nation of Egypt, but he saved his people as they started to grow. And Esther, you know, I'm sure she would have been content to live with her uncle Mordecai, maybe even find a husband, raise a family. But God caused her to go into the king's harem, which probably would have caused everybody a little bit of concern, but she was made queen so that, again, she could save their people. Content in God's providence, wherever that might take him. They're also satisfied with very little. Uh, Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And there's that all-important word again, learned. Again, this runs contrary to the anthem of our culture, which says, I need more, which really is, I want more. That's what it means. Um, They use the word need, but that's our flesh constantly wanting more, but never being satisfied. That's why I think that some of the people that are the wealthiest are some of the most unhappy people. Like they're not content because this is all there is. Like I have all the resources to be happy and this is it. And they become very unhappy, very discontent. And have you ever noticed how much we use that word need? We use that word all the time. I need a break. I need a vacation. I need a Big Mac. Whatever it is, we use that word a lot. But what we really mean is once. And we mentioned it last week that feelings get elevated in our culture above everything else, how we're feeling. And that dictates the things that we think we need. And how feelings are directly tied to relative truth. And that's what everybody's chasing now is my relative truth and my feelings. And what they're really chasing is what I think I need. This is what I need in my life to make me happy. And that's going to be my truth. Um, There was a comedian who said once, trying to be happy by accumulating possessions is like trying to satisfy your hunger by taping sandwiches all over your body. Like you can't satisfy your hunger from the outside and you can't become a contented, happy person by bringing things in from the outside. It's going to come from within. There are really very few things that we need. Uh, The rest are wants, Uh, big wants, little wants. Uh, That's why Jesus said, your heavenly father knows what you need, not what you want, because we actually need very little, but he knows what we need and he will meet those. The world's greatest need is Jesus, but people live like God doesn't exist. Now, if you went out and asked people, does God exist? A lot of people would say, yeah, I believe that God exists, but they live like he doesn't exist. And when people live like God doesn't exist, what they're saying is that the ultimate goal in my life is to have my needs met. But Paul knew that the chief end of man was to glorify God and to make him known. That's why he could be content with very little. Next point is, Contentment was independent of his circumstances, and it should be for us as well. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I found an article that was talking about the five levels of need. Uh, It's called Maslow's Hierarchy. Has anybody ever heard of that? Yeah. They teach this in school. I just asked Devin. He's like, I just wrote a paper on it the other day in psychology. It's crazy. So, 
I didn't know what it was till yesterday. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Check this out. This is what these are. Our physiological needs. These are our basic needs for survival. Food, water, rest, clothing, and shelter. These are needed before we can move on to the next level, which is our safety needs. These are personal security, employment, resources, health security, and financial security. And then the third one is love and belonging. Among these are the need for friendships and family bonds, both with our biological family and our chosen family. And then esteem needs, the primary elements of esteem, self-respect, the, the idea that you are valuable and you are deserving of dignity. And then self-esteem, confidence in your potential for personal growth and accomplishment. And then lastly, self actualization needs. Um, This describes the fulfillment of your full potential as a person. These include things like education and skill development and refining our talents. Now, these are supposed to be the basis for human behavioral motivation, right? These lead to a contented life. This is what the world tells us. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians about his life. He's being very candid here as he is talking to them. And so I'm going to read it out of the message translation because it's very candid. It says, since you admire the egomaniacs of the pulpit so much, remember, this is your old friend talking, the fool. Let me try my hand at it. Do they brag of being Hebrews, Israelites, the pure race of Abraham? I'm their match. Are they servants of Christ? I can go them one better. I can't believe I'm saying these things. It's crazy to talk this way, but I started and I'm going to finish. I've worked much harder, been jailed more often, beaten up more times than I can count. At death's door, time after time, I've been flogged five times with the Jews' 39 lashes, beaten by Roman rods three times, pummeled with rocks once. I've been shipwrecked three times, immersed in the open sea for a night and a day, in hard traveling year in and year out. I've had to ford rivers, fend off robbers, struggle with friends, struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city, at risk in the country, endangered by desert sun and sea storm, and betrayed by those I thought were my brothers. I've known drudgery and hard labor, many a long and lonely night without sleep, many a missed meal, blasted by the cold, naked to the weather. That's not the half of it. When you throw in the daily pressures and anxieties of all the churches, when someone gets to the end of their rope, I feel the desperation in my bones. When someone is duped into sin, an angry fire burns in my gut. If I have to brag about myself, I'll brag about the humiliations that make me like Jesus. The eternal and blessed God and Father of our Master Jesus knows that I'm not lying. Remember the time I was in Damascus and the governor of King Eretus posted guards at the city gates to arrest me? I crawled through a window in the wall and they let me down in a basket and had to run for my life. So that was one of the earlier books that Paul had written. And now he's writing Philippians towards the end of his, of his life. And he's writing about a life that is almost completely opposite of what that needs chart is. Those things that we need to be happy. And here he is in a jail cell writing about joy. This isn't the prosperity gospel, right? Not at all. Uh, I saw uh, a video earlier this week about the televangelist, uh, Jesse Duplantis, the three-piece suit guy, a wolf in sheep's clothing is what he is. And he was doing an interview and he was talking about if Jesus were here today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. He would have a personal jet because he was trying to raise $54 million for his own personal jet. Jesus was here today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. Well, this ain't the prosperity gospel that Paul's writing about. 
Paul's content, and it didn't depend on his circumstances. Next, content people are strengthened by divine power. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is a verse that gets taken out of context often. Um, It's one that gets taken out of context because it sounds very positive, but unfortunately it comes off as very self-serving instead of God-serving. All things here is referring to suffering and trials, the thing that he's going through. That word, I can do all things, is I can endure all things through him who gives me strength. Not climbing the ladder of some personal success. So all of those, you know, refrigerator verses, these inspirational ones, when you read that one, it is true. He gives us the the energy, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do things, but to endure all the hardships is what Paul's talking about. Listen to what he writes. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 29. These are verses that you guys have heard. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So you guys are familiar with those verses. If you've been in church for a while, I think most of you have been. But here's the key. Only those who live lives of obedience to God's will can count on that power to sustain them. If we're living in rebellion or in, you know, intentional sin, if we're living in that lifestyle, how can we count on God's power to sustain us through the trials of life? There are no shortcuts. We have to be in the word. We have to be in line with his will. It only comes through consistent, holy living. I mean, if you think about our physical health, if good nutrition and right living and exercise is what makes us healthy, then spiritually feeding on the word, living out that life of holiness and working out our salvation is things that we need to have that power in our life that Paul's talking about. So knowledge of God, reading his word, being together as a church body, gathering together like we are and in small groups and in times of prayer. And I will admit, time of honesty here, openness, transparency, that praying is difficult for me. It's difficult for me, um, even as a pastor. I fall into the trap of wanting to be a doer. I want to do things. I want to be able to see things uh, for my efforts. And so I don't pray as often as I should. Um, and I was thinking about that. You know, Doing things is not how we stay in right relationship with God. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we perform. Praying aligns us with God's will, gets us in line with him. Here's what Oswald Chambers, if you guys have heard of him, he writes the devotion. If you're looking for a devotion in your life, you can't do better than my utmost for his highest. If you guys don't have a copy of that, um, you should get one. Here's what he had to say about prayer. Prayer does not fit us for the greater works. Prayer is the greater work. The way fruit remains is by prayer. But remember, it is prayer based on the agony of redemption, not on my agony. Only a child gets prayer answered. A wise man does not. Prayer is the battle. It is a matter of indifference where you are. Whichever way God engineers circumstances, the duty is to pray. Never allow the thought, I am of no use where I am, because you certainly can be of no use where you are not. There's nothing thrilling about a laboring man's work, but it is the laboring man who makes the ideas of the genius possible. And it is the laboring saint who makes the ideas of the master possible. You labor at prayer and results happen all the time from his standpoint. What an astonishment it will be to find when the veil is lifted, the souls that have been reaped by you simply because you had been in the habit of taking your orders from Jesus Christ. 
A contented person is strengthened by divine power. They're also preoccupied with the well-being of others. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that it increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The theme that runs through this entire portion is that a person who lives for themselves is never going to be content. Never going to be content. Paul just told us that he can endure all things through Christ who strengthens him. Now he says, yet. In some translations, he says, nevertheless. And what he's doing is he's letting the church know that you guys have done the right thing. Um, He could have said, listen, I can endure all things through Christ who gives me strength. I don't really need your gift. But that's not what he did. He said it brought him joy, not because he needed it, not because he needed the material benefit, but because of the spiritual benefit that it brought to the Philippian church. Paul said, I have received full payment. I am well supplied, and you guys are going to get the credit for that. It's a biblical truth that those who give generously will be blessed. Why? Because you can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. He is not going to be a debtor to any man. There's no way that we can give and have God say, oh, wow, man, you know what? I wasn't really prepared (laughs) for that, but now that I'm going to have to owe you one, okay? I'll make it up to you later. That's not what God's going to do. I was talking to, I was talking to Jason. Uh, We were texting back and forth and uh, they were doing some work at St. James at the church. And he said, I took about 12 pews out of there. And I'm keeping them in my basement until we get into a church building. And we're going to put pews in there. I said, awesome. Pews keep people awake. I'm going to put them in the front. The first 12 rows are going to be pews. If you get there early, you get a pew. That's what's going to happen. Can't outgive God. Proverbs 11.24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Proverbs 22.9 says, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. In Acts 20.35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Paul likens their giving to a sacrifice, a sweet smelling aroma, like what we have going on here today, a pleasing sacrifice. So, Once Jesus came and become the once and for all sacrifice, we don't have any more need to sacrifice animals, obviously, thank goodness. But it tells us to offer spiritual sacrifices, that we are to offer our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice in the way that we live our lives. And that we are to offer a sacrifice of praise. Uh, Sometimes we come to church and we don't necessarily feel like worshiping, but we are to offer a sacrifice of praise. I, I get frustrated when I you know, would go to churches and I would look around and I would see people standing with their coffee, with their Starbucks cup, you know, and worship just kind of stand. I don't want to judge at the way people worship, not at all. But what I'm saying is for 20 minutes, we can give it all we got and praise the one that saved us. Amen. Okay. Enough of that. Preoccupied with 
the well-being of others. Paul said, I don't seek the gift, I seek the fruit that goes to your credit. And that's what God's after. God's not after our money. He doesn't need our money. But tithing and things like that, giving, is not God's way of raising money. It's God's way of raising kids. He wants us to be able to let go of the things that we think we need and trust in his provision. Listen to what he says here in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If you give, you're going to get back. It is a principle of the kingdom. He's going to meet your needs and it's all for his glory. It's all for his glory. When he meets our needs, we are to turn that back into praise. One more verse from the richest and wisest man who ever lived, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel. It's a giving principle that comes with a promise attached to it. Are we seeking to honor ourselves with what we make? Or are we seeking to honor the Lord with what we make? Then verse 21, greet every saint in Jesus Christ. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints who greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. How are there saints in Caesar's household? That's an interesting one. That's because we have these guards that for almost two years have been chained to Paul eight hours a day, listening to him and going back and talking to their family saying, you will not believe this guy that I am chained to. I mean, he should be miserable and angry, just like all of the other guys that we watch in here, but he's full of joy, and he's talking about this guy named Jesus that he says died for him, and it's changed his life. I can't believe it. And they all started to believe too, and they were in Caesar's household. I think that's pretty cool. Some friends of ours have a family motto, and I think it's really good. It says, live it so others get it. Live it so others get it. If you don't have a family motto, it's not a bad thing um, to get one of those. And when we live it, other people will get it, uh, just like Paul did. And he ends this letter in the same way that he started it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And that's how he started off the letter. Um, I've really enjoyed going through the book of Philippians. I hope you guys have too in gaining some insight in how we can have joy in the middle of any circumstance. Uh, as I was finishing this up on Friday, I was trying to think of a way, like, how can I summarize this entire book uh, to help us kind of wrap it up and help us remember all the things that we've talked about? And what I thought I would do is just write a synopsis, like as if I was writing it, right? In my own, and I'm just not going to be as long, but it's just going to be a short note as if I were writing it in my own handwriting. And the worship team can come back up. Hello to all the saints in Philippi. Paul and Timothy here. Man, I love you guys. You guys have been with me since the beginning. You guys are so precious to me. Yes, I'm in prison, but what's happened to me is actually advanced the gospel. Jesus is being preached. I want to come see you soon, but even if I die, that's okay, because I want to be with Jesus, and that's what I really want. Keep living holy. Don't be scared. If we live for Jesus, we'll certainly suffer as he did. Be like him. Be humble and serve one another. That's the light that people will see. Work out your salvation. Don't grumble or argue. I want to make sure that I didn't do all this for nothing. I'm sending my two best men to you. These guys love you the same way that I do. Don't fall into legalism. Look out for those dogs. Our righteousness comes from faith in Christ, not a religious resume. By the way, you know mine's pretty good, but it's all garbage. All I want to do is know him better. Keep striving towards the goal. We're headed for heaven. 
Imitate me and others mature in the faith and you'll do well. Settle all the conflict. Our time is too short. Always be rejoicing. We have so much to be thankful for. Keep talking to God. He wants to hear from him. You need to hear from him. Keep your mind on good things and your life will reflect it. Thanks again for the gift. I'm content with my situation, but I love you that you guys have all continued to partner with me. Not just because it helps me out, but more importantly are the rewards that you guys are going to receive in heaven. That brings me so much joy. God's going to take care of you all spiritually and practically because of your generosity. Tell everyone at church that I said hello. Everyone here sends greetings too, especially the new believers that actually live in Caesar's house. I pray grace over you. He'll see you through to the end. Sincerely, your brother, Paul. And as I wrote that, like, I just kept reading it. And I was like tearing up. I just could like feel the pastor heart of Paul as he's reaching out to this church and these people that he loves and he can't be with, but he wants to. And he's like, I know that God is going to take care of you guys. And you guys can have joy in the middle of circumstances that you have no control over. And if we don't learn to be content in this life, we're going to find contempt for this life. We're going to become angry. We're going to become bitter. If he loved you enough to die for you, we can trust him that he has you in the situation that you're supposed to be in, and he's going to see you through to the end. Our ultimate goal is to bring him glory and lift him up high. Amen. Love is a strong and mighty